Kids Comics. And here are your hosts, Michael and Andrew Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to, if you are a long-term listener to the show, for which many thanks, you will recognise as our annual, biannual, right. lurgy-filled <laughs> episode. There's, there's, a, there's more than there should be. There's always one lurgy-filled episode. I've, I've not had a voice. Some people may look at that as a blessing. Uh, not great in my line of work, quite simple. <laughs> but it is what it is. So. Yeah, teach through dance. Teach through interpretive dance. <laughs> well, you've got all this technology now, and you've got near pods and all that stuff. Well, exactly, yeah. You can do your, your teaching. So you just say, right, do that. I was going to sit over here and die. Yeah, here's a textbook. Copy yeah. out of the textbook. That's how that's so, all I was doing, you know. Thing. So, for those of you that had episode, is this episode seven since we came I back? I believe so. On the uh, the chart of how long before Andrew gets a lurgy. Well done. You have won. Well, you've won nothing. If, but, if you were betting on how long it would take for one of us to get ill, or who? In a very small audience of you that were doing that. Yeah, very small part of the very small audience that is actually doing that. That would be awesome. We are going to begin today with a Christmas present. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. But, Andrew, you're thinking, you did the Christmas presents episode. Yes, that is true, lovely listener. We did. But in that Christmas presents episode, I said more presents were forthcoming. Did I not? (laughs) You did. And this, this is so good. It is worth talking about, I feel. Okay. This is the Spider-Man Ben Riley Marvel Omnibus Volume 1. In actuality, from the George Lucas School of Numbering, Volume 3 of the Clone Saga. I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but how can that be, Andrew? Well, I will explain that to you, lovely listener. Clone Saga Volume 1 and 2 have not yet been published. Well, republished. They all came out, like, in 2006. Right. And I was among the people who said, no, he's going to buy that. (laughs) How stupid I was. Yeah. Everybody bought it. It is now really, really hard to get those for a reasonable price. So I'm actually quite glad Marvel are publishing it. So technically, then, after Clone Saga Volume 1 and 2, you have Ben Riley Omnibus Volume 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. Why they didn't number them just Clone Saga 1, 2, 3, and 4, I cannot possibly understand. Unless Ben Riley is so popular as to slapping his name on an omnibus like this makes it sell. He gained some... Popularity he's, he's by being best. in by being in the second Spider Verse. He has got a fun best. This is a nice little omnibus. As with Marvel's omnibus, it has very nice. When you open the dust jacket, it has a cover, which I believe that's a Dan Jurgens image from um, the Ben Riley comic that came out, Sensational Spider Man. I think it was called. This is a very nice paper. Gutter's not shit. Mm-hmm. We like a good gutter. Yeah. Around these parts, so you can actually lay the book open and see the entirety of the pages. What does that do to the spine, though? Can you see that? That look okay. Spine looks okay. Spine looks good. I'm glad we're doing these review shows. <laughs> uh, it's got oh Jesus Christ! How many issues has this got in it? Quite a lot. Web of Scarlet Spider one through four. And I'm not reading all of that. Nobody cares, do they? I'm amazed that this is all happening because for as long as I can remember, the Clone Saga was was not An regarded. <laughs> I think so, is the word you're looking so for. Highly. So it's bizarre how how much effort and time and money Marvel putting into it well, now. Well, those nineties kids, yeah. of which you you just missed the Clone Saga, didn't you? Well, yeah, yeah. You only yeah. really started reading Spider Man with um, Straczynski, didn't you? Yeah. Other than obviously my back issues and shit like that, but new on the stands. Yes, it was Straczynski, wasn't it? So people who were thirty, yeah, thirty-five, yearning <laughs> for the now lost youth. I've wanted to read the Clone Saga several times. Well, and you, you have very much kind of gone. <laughs> no, you don't. Hell, we have a show. <laughs> but the only thing with this, can you imagine if we covered the Clone Saga in a monthly show? We'd have to do a multi-part. It'd be a year, the year of the Clone Saga, a year of nothing but the Clone Saga. And I don't think even I want that. Does the Chinese calendar have a spider? The year of the spider, and that would be it. Excuse me, I'll, I'll try and edit the coffee. We, we wait until the Chinese year of the spider. Yeah, and then we'll just do all, all Clone Saga all the time. Yeah, it may actually be worth letting you read some of this, though. 
when I've got all four of them. Because I am going to get all four of them. Well, I was considering getting the, the Epic Collections. Which oh, yeah, are, the Epic Collection. The first volume of that comes out. And they so, they seem pretty good because they collect quite a lot. You get like 400 pages yeah, yeah, for yeah. £20, £30. And I've, I've been eyeing up some of the X-Men stuff, some of the Spider-Man stuff. But it's it's, it's there's, there's a lot. And I suppose it's, we were discussing this with Nightfall, the way they've been collected is they've never been collected before. Or then they'll do a one version, but you have to buy the Omnibus to get them all. And that, the problem I'm having with Spider-Man is I've got like the first... Have I got five Omnibuses? Something like going that, Going yeah. from Lee Ditko through to Len Wein. Yeah. And the epics are kind of in that place now. I'm like, well, should I start picking up the epics? Yeah. But the next epic to come out is all of Len Wein's run and four issues of Marvel. Well, run. they do them very out of order, don't they? Because they number what volume they're on the back and yeah. maybe do volume two, then volume 27. Yeah. And then... It's like with Daredevil. It's like the early Stanley, Jack Kirby, Gene Colan stuff's out there. Yeah. And then there's like loads of 90s stuff. Yeah. There's nothing in the between. And that's when you realise that, A, nobody cares <laughs> about Daredevil post-Stanley and Gene Coulomb before Frank Miller arrives. Right. But the Frank Miller stuff is still selling in high-class omnibuses. Yeah. yeah so they yeah. don't kind of want to put that into into epic collections yet. Yeah. Because people are still willing to pay for these big-ticket items for the Frank Miller stuff. Yeah. So it's very, very weird how they're working it out. There so, must be rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. So do these omnibuses, the, the, the Ben Riley and Clone Sargons, do they, despite being weird with the numbering, do they collect everything in everything order? Everything in order, yeah. Corey Seidel, who is in charge of Marvel Bus, Marvel's omnibus programme, mm. is why these are so good. Right. He meticulously recolours, meticulously rescans. Okay. So they, they are largely the best that these comics have ever looked. So worth the price tag. I don't know that they're worth what they currently are. This yeah. was... $150 significantly yeah, yeah. on Amazon obviously I don't really like supporting Amazon I actually got this from Forbidden Planet okay. that's the direct market cover right? Okay. Um, because they had it cheaper than Amazon Yeah. even with the postage which was a bit weird but it yeah. is what it is I mean it all depends on what you love and what you want I did used to buy a lot of omnibuses of stuff that I was oh I wouldn't mind having that Yeah. under today's prices there's no way I'd buy a Silver Surfer omnibus and especially the amount that they publish that might not warrant an omnibus. Yeah. I know it's the same with DC with the absolutes. They've gone up quite hefty. And what they collect <clears throat> isn't always worth it. No. There is a certain level. Well, Jeff Johns' stuff is currently getting super, an absolute Superman. Yeah. Of Jeff Johns' Superman stuff. I recently reread Superman Lost Son, the one he did with Richard Donner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Superman Brainiac, the one he did with Gary Frank. Yeah. God, Lost Son's not good. Mm. Brainiac's better, but it reads very much like this is what Superman 5 would have been. Okay. If we'd have made Superman 5 with Christopher Reed, this is what we'd have done. Yeah. And it felt really retrograde compared to how Superman developed over the 90s mm. with the marriage and all the supporting cast. Yeah. And then suddenly you've just got Cat Grant being a cleavage, cleavagey slut bomb. Yeah, yeah. And no character there, no personality. And Brainiac shows up and he's like he would, he was. Previous Brainiacs didn't happen or were a dream or whatever. Okay, yeah. But it was better than Last Son, which for a Cuba joint, the art wasn't good. Right, okay. I just was not impressed with it on any level. But that's getting an absolute. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, everything has some fans. Yeah. Right? It's whether and it's... it all comes down to price versus print run, doesn't it? Mm. If they can sell an omnibus like this for 150 bucks on a very low print run, Let's be honest, that's costing them nothing. These creators don't get paid any more for this, do they? Yeah, yeah. Or do they in Marvel? I don't know that they do in Marvel land. But anyway, so, and then I'm just going to sell the comics. All right. Because I don't really need everything twice at my age. You can have them if you want. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> put that away then. Walk away from the microphone in a very professional manner. So when Clone Saga Omnibus Volume 1 arrives, we'll have a look at that as well. I feel like I've been done dirty here. We've covered your extra Christmas present. I feel like I deserve an extra Christmas present. You've got an extra Christmas present. Do I? Yeah. I've just got to wait until next year. Yeah, we've brought this back. <laughs> of course, we brought yeah. this back to you. Uh, we'll start with an either before we go into the crux of the show, which I'm very excited mm. to, to learn what you thought of it, because you're not normally a big fan of these kinds of crossovers. Right, okay. So okay. I'm, I'm quite excited Will I about surprise? That. I, well, there's a, that's titillating, isn't it? <laughs> That's um, teasing you. Michael Bailey's emailed in. I'm like, Michael and Andy, top billing. <laughs> oh. uh, do, is that because I get an and? Yes. Are we still in that territory? And 
Larry oh, nice. Minetti as Rick. Right, okay. Well, I was I was feeling quite good about myself, but you've uh... but no, you get you get top sell it, Millard. All right, so there you go. That's worth something. <laughs> I, I, I want to with next. It's okay, fine. <laughs> uh, I'm catching up on feedback as I realised I never sent y'all. I love that an email in your pulp episode. I thought I did, but I realised what I actually did was send Andy a message through Facebook during one of our daily message exchanges. Should I look that up and see what he said? <laughs> I was trying to write it for every episode, but realised writing in about two episodes is kind of like old times, because that's how I would do it for the old show. Well, there's really no excuse there, Mike, because we're monthly now, my friend. <laughs> I will not disappoint Michael now by informing you all that I'm not writing this in my car while driving, between lights, of course, nor am I writing it at work, timing and all that. And also, I would hope you have learned... That the traffic rules. I don't yeah. know what traffic <laughs> rules are in America, but over here, you are not allowed to have a phone in your hand. But you're not. You're not allowed to. That doesn't stop a lot of people. Yeah, but it, it's it's you know we don't encourage such behaviour. <laughs> Buckle up. Don't put your phone in your hand. <laughs> Feel like Batman. <laughs> put down the phone, old chum. My main feedback is how much you enjoy listening to you talk about the books that are currently grabbing your attention. That points a number of things, but none more than the fact that we are at a point, for good or ill, where the superhero genre is waning. When you both started Hey Kids back in 2011, that is such a <laughs> it was during the high point of an era that started roughly around 2003 and would crash in 2016 and then limp along until we are where we are today. While other genres were doing okay back then, the market was still all about the capes, mainly because the movie and television versions were doing so well, and so your episodes were more focused mainly on those books. It's where you both were, mostly. It's where the audience was. It made sense. But things are so different now. Superheroes are still dominant in terms of rack space, but they're not the ones making the most money. YA graphic novels are doing booming business and other genres are thriving as well because the superhero genre is not giving us much to work with. Marvel seems to be limping along and DC is all over the place, though I will give them credit for trying to hit a larger number of potential readers by having books that appeal to certain demographics. But those demographics are small, and to go with something you discussed during the feedback, it seems like even the big guns like Batman and Spider-Man are trapped in an endless cycle of major events in an effort to maintain an ever-shrinking audience. Also, mm -hmm. I will add to that, it also seems like the big guns like Batman are carrying DC Comics. How many Batman comics are there in a month? Yes. There's quite a lot. There's more than the there are Spider-Man. Bat family. Yeah. There's, there's quite, I mean, even Spider-Man now has got Spider-Boy, the Superior Spider-Man, that's not bad. Okay. Ultimate Spider-Man, I'll let you read that, that was quite okay. good. Um, an Amazing Spider-Man, which wavers. Yeah. But then you've got Spider-Gwen or Ghost Spider or whatever she's called, and the Miles Morales Spider-Man and all that stuff. That's kind of what I miss, is the monthly excitement of, of having something that's solidly good. The last Marvel thing I can think of that had that for me was Immortal Hulk. I was going to say Immortal Hulk. Was just having... You need a strong contender, and it doesn't have to run forever, but just something enough to kind of make you go, I will pick that up next yeah, month. I will I go feel, to the comic store every month. I feel there's very few of them at the moment. At the moment, for Marvel, it's fantastic. For yeah, I genuinely am impressed with how good that book is mm. because Ryan North, who I'd never heard of, yeah, never apparently he's got a big indie cred, which is where right. a lot of them come from. Okay, I'd never heard of him, and he's basically just doing what I think you should do with the Fantastic Four. It's not a superhero title. Yeah. It's Lost in Space with superheroes. Right, yeah, yeah. It's Edgar Rice Burroughs meets Space Family Robinson. That's what it is. Yeah. And that's what he's doing. He's just doing these massive, brilliant science fiction concepts. The most recent issue I read, the Fantastic Four discover that somebody has written this program that goes on people's phones and they think they are just playing a game. Right. But what he's really doing is he's harvesting data yeah. that allows him to then change the future. Right, okay. So he is retroactive. No, it's not even retroactive. He is changing the future before it happens by using this web app that gathers all this data. Okay. And there's a brilliant line in it is, yeah, we should have had a pandemic. Did you notice we didn't have one? <laughs> And I thought that is a brilliant way of saying the Marvel Universe didn't have COVID. Right, right. So they yeah, can yeah. just skirt around that now and never have to mention it. Yeah. And I thought it was brilliant. And then, of course, the end of the story is Reed Richards finds out somebody else is controlling this. You're not controlling this. And he's like, what? Yeah. And suddenly he sees that the future isn't going his way. And Reed has to basically torch the app. Right. But that is such a good modern science fiction idea yeah. for that comic. And it's every single issue has been 
each character has had the spotlight to show what they are good at. Right. So there was an episode where Ben Grimm was trapped somewhere and they didn't think he'd get out of it because of the things we fit, right? Yeah. But he's not. He was an RAF. He's not an RAF pilot. <laughs> he was an Air Force pilot. Yeah, the yeah. guy is not stupid. And he's thinking it's brilliant. It is genuinely okay. my favourite boot Marvel are currently publishing. It's one of those I keep thinking of trying. Cause... I'll lend you the first 15. Yeah. It is genuinely. Well, it's a 15 now. Yeah, because sometimes they'll double ship. Right, you got it. So occasionally you'll get that different artist thing. Yeah. But with the FF, because the stories are so good, you don't really care. And the art's never sucked. Yeah. They've never had a sucky issue art like. But the, it is genuinely my favourite book at the minute. Okay. I'm genuinely impressed. I think I've got one at the moment. I'm still getting stuff. But I'm mostly getting specials or minis apart from Thor uh, of the immortal variety. Well, Cap, you like Captain America. Right. Because you do like Straczynski stuff. Well. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> and it is squirrely in his wheelhouse. Okay. There is nothing new or innovative about it. It is Captain America versus the Nazis. Which is always fun. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Yeah, if it ain't broke. Yeah, it's something there's nothing wrong with just doing a superhero comic. Yeah. And it's very good. Now, let's hope at some point in the future he doesn't do a sin's past. <laughs> let's hope he just keeps doing what he's doing. But I genuinely think you'll enjoy Captain America. Okay. Spider-Man's good when it's the gang war stuff. Right. The minute it's doing all that stuff with Mary Jane lived in a future alternate reality for 30 years and now she's married with two kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. Get in the bin. Either do something with Mary Jane or just write her out the book. It's a shame about Spider-Man. Because I, I, I remember the excitement of having... Was it an expensive no, Brian Hotler? That fizzled. That fizzled. It's just never, it's never called back to me, but I, I'm interested in Ultimate Spider-Man. Well, I'll let you read the first one. I'll see what you think of it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I very much enjoyed it. Which is it. high praise now. I base all of my opinions on, well, my dad likes it, so it must be in the pen. It must be at least all right. <laughs> yeah. the very least. This isn't new, continues Michael, who interrupted his email. I know. In that twenty in two thousand three, sorry, to twenty sixteen period, there were yearly events for the most part at both companies, but that's where the market was at the time, and in some cases it was kind of fun. Also, especially at DC, it was all one universe, so the stakes felt a little higher. Now it just feels tired and a huge waste of time. I enjoyed Dark Crisis, where the main villain turned out to be a mental illness, but if I had read that after going through Dark Metal, I would probably have a completely different reaction. I have absolutely no memory of Dark Crisis and Dark. Was Dark Metal the Batman one that you liked? Uh, death Metal, yeah, yeah, yeah. So was that so Death I, Metal? I liked Metal. Right. I did not like Death Metal because it, it, it goes So what, Dark Metal? Or are they the same things? I'm, yeah, I'm guessing it's the same thing. Okay. See, I have but, no clue. I've not read any of that. that again, yeah. my, my disappointment with that was there were no stakes. Yeah. They changed the future. It was a post-apocalyptic uh, wasteland, and then the end of it was just, lol, we'll just undo it all. It's fine. Right, okay. See, I don't think I've read any of them, have I? I think I read you, some of your you, metal you ones. Metal. But I have no memory of it, which says everything. But Death Metal also has the ending where Scott Snyder goes, we have a sliding timeline. Everything that ever happened, every single published comic actually definitely happened to that Morrison approach because it's yeah but but not as good not as yeah not as thought through not as thought through which is especially weird considering it came immediately after Jeff Johns's uh Doomsday Clock which yeah. also had the slide in timeline but that felt like it worked more yeah Doomsday Clock was weird I I remember actually liking Doomsday Clock Doomsday Clock was good and it's I love the way you pause it was Good, like it was good by normal standards. It was, yeah, it was good, and I think it it only really suffered because of the delays. But it's some of Gary Frank's best recent art as well. So yeah. reading it now, all collected together, that's fine. But well, I said to you, I read Superman Brainiac, and the fact that he draws Superman and Lois like Margot Kidder and Chris Reeve just doesn't bother me now. Yeah, at the time I thought mm, a bit ghoulish that, but now since he's appeared in the Flash. <laughs> yeah. Everything's on the table. Which the the Reeve family have said that they did not approve of. So well, watch the video. Yeah, they diplomatically say we've not seen it. Yeah, Alexandra, his daughter's face tells a completely different story. Right, her face says, <laughs> um, right, yeah. because he wouldn't have agreed to it. Yeah, flat out, no, he wouldn't have agreed to it. Anyway, it has been a joy listening to you both talk about the books you've been talking about. Whilst I probably won't track down Pulp, track down Pulp and Battle Action, I did enjoy your reactions to both, and Pulp in particular seemed to be a cracking read. That's it for now. Until next month, Mikey might be. Pulp's awesome. Mike, you've been watching loads of westerns recently. Honestly, read Pulp. <laughs>
I thought about rereading it the other day after watching the Butch and the Sundance. Like, yeah, we both on. watched Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kid this week. But apart from meet each other, like it yeah, was yeah, one you texted me that you were watching it. I was like, I'm not so afraid of the fancy rewatching it, and I found it was on BBC iPlayer. Yeah, so I watched it a couple of days after you watched it, and we're just texting each other quotes <laughs> for, and it's it's as well. <laughs> Similar to Pulp, I've just uh, been reading through uh, the last volume of Criminal, yeah. and one of the essays was about Paul Newman and the colour of money, so it's like, oh, go on, I'll, I'll I'll have a little Paul Newman double bill, oh, go on, I'll track this down next, I'll watch this next. Uh, what did I say to you? Most charismatic screen actor of the 1960s, I said. More, so, I said. Than... More so than Steve McQueen. Yeah. Steve McQueen's cool, but he always plays Steve McQueen. Yeah. Paul Newman was an actor. I still maintain... I don't know what it is, but if you put there's something about Paul Newman in, in that film, or if you put Norm Macdonald in the same role in Butch Cassidy and the Sonic, indistinguishable. They look similar, they act similar, they talk to Norm Macdonald could have been Butch Cassidy. Well in a timeline we'll never see. In an ultimate timeline, Norm Macdonald could have been Butch Cassidy. Right, today we are covering a crossover comic. But you always can go either way, can't they? <laughs> Throughout the history of entertainment media, readers have had an interest in characters from one story meeting another. On TV, the 1950s saw Superman meet Lucille Ball. And he did. He wasn't George Reeves. Superman was in Lucille right. Ball's show. So in the, in the Lucille Ball show reality, Superman yeah. exists. Okay. He's a real thing. <laughs> In the 70s, the $6 million man showed many an adventure, and presumably other things would be bionic woman. And who can forget the senses-shattering meeting between Matlock and Dr. Mark Sloan on diagnosis murder. That was years after Matlock got cancelled, man. Right. That was, you know, blimey. These are but three examples from a medium where Thomas Magnum met Jessica Fletcher, Mulder and Scully met Detective Munch, and Sam and Dean Winchester solved the case with Scooby-Doo. Sadly, we never got to the ones I wanted to see. Kolchak investigates the urban myth of the Incredible Hulk, or Mulder tried to convince Scully that Manimal was a real thing. We also never got to see the TARDIS land briefly in the middle of an episode of Blake 7, although they didn't actually talk about that on more than one occasion. Comics have done this kind of thing all the time, and now the movies can't stop doing it, but one franchise largely kept itself to itself. Star Trek. That sounded manly, didn't it? Yes. Well, until the 1990s, floodgates opened. In 1996, Marvel Comics found itself with the license to print Star Trek comics, and thus the crew of the Enterprise met the X-Men, a story worthwhile possibly only for the moment where someone asked for Dr. McCoy, and both Leonard and the Beast say yes. So they wrote the story around that around guy. Around that guy would not surprise <laughs> me, to be honest with you. The Next Generation crew also met the X-Men, albeit in a novel. But the comics have seen the Enterprise crew meet Doctor Who, Matt Smith Division, Aliens, Green Lantern, and even the Transformers. Some of these sound, you know. <laughs> However, there was one Star Trek crossover that a lot of people, including myself, actually wanted to see. What if, I know that's copyrighted to Marvel, the crew of the Enterprise visited the planet of the Apes. I think if Marvel really do copyright what if, we'll just have to re-edit everything and go, perchance. Perchance the Enterprise is the planet. That just makes it sound like Ponzi Shakespeare in the past. It does. It's, it's what this show needs, a bit more pretension. Oh, no, it doesn't. Boom Studios, who owned the Planet of the Ace license, Apes license, forgive me this time, lovely listener, and IDW owned Star Trek, gave us the answer to this tantalising question in 2015 with the five-part The Primate Directive. You see what they did? Quality That's gag. Quality gag. Written by Scott and David Tipton, with art by Rachel Stott, the series was highlighted by being able to actually draw George Taylor to look like Charlton Heston. <laughs> That's true. They reached an agreement with Heston's estate for this series. They've never had that before. Okay. So if you read the other comic book adaptations of Planet of the Apes that Marvel did in the 70s, yeah. George Taylor has a big bushy beard. Right. So they can cover his... Yeah, yeah. they look anything like Charlton Heston. Right. They didn't have likeness right. I always think that's really weird, that. You buy the license to a property, but don't have likeness rights to the characters. 
Oh, he's very strange. I suppose it's actors, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Just... yeah for every Mark Hamill, he's like, I'm in a comet. You get somebody who's like Sigourney Weaver, he's like, I'm in a comet. <laughs> Star Trek Planet of the Apes works better than, say, X-Men, as both are children of the 60s, coming at mankind from opposing sides. Star Trek's more optimistic. We can pull together if we stop being assholes approach, colliding full force against apes' decidedly more pessimistic tone. Kirk, as essayist Dana Gould pointed out, personifies the clear-headed, sharp-eyed, can-do spirit of the post-World War II generation. Taylor is the personification of the melancholy of the Vietnam era. But also, who doesn't want to see inveterate scene chewers William Shatner and Charlton Heston share the screen together? Forever denied that, this comic is the next best thing. I don't really want to ask you what you thought of it yet, because we don't want to shoot our well, load. We'll say in regards to... In regards to that, I did read this all in all of their voices, and it worked much better. It does, doesn't it? The cadences and the speech patterns are all spot on. Yeah. Got to give the Tiptons credit for that. The dialogue, everybody's dialogue in it feels like it's coming out of the mouths of those actors. Mm. It's very well done. All right, we'll just blitz through the synopsis. Um, I have edited it substantially <laughs> okay. to allow for my poorly throat. I hope you're all feeling for me. Bizarre emanations in space-time, I hate it when that happens, lead the Enterprise to deduce the Klingons are up to no good. Kel surprise, interfering not only with the development of another civilization, but another timeline. Two for one deal, I would imagine. Every little helps. In a world where apes rule supreme, the Klingons are arming the primate population, causing the extermination of what is left of humanity as a way of circumventing the Organian Peace Treaty. Continuity. The Enterprise crew journey through the same rift in space to stop the Klingons. Upon arrival, Kirk and co. find George Taylor, who asks them to help overthrow the apes. However, Kirk is adamant that this would violate the Prime Directive and refuses. After teaming up with Taylor, Cornelius and Zira, they defeat the Klingons who flee the planet. About four episodes left. <laughs> Impressed. The Enterprise chases Kor's ship, but are shocked to see the alternative Earth destroyed. The Enterprise pursues Kor back through the portal to their own universe. Meanwhile, Cornelius, Zira and Milo, he wasn't important to this story, so don't worry about it, are in orbit on board a, prim a primitive, not a primitive, <laughs> space vessel having witnessed the destruction below. Not knowing what to do, they consult a tricorder left behind by Kirk's team. Well, that was... <laughs> Bloody useless of him, wasn't it? Curless. Was that Dr. McCoy again, like in a piece of the action? No, it was the dead guy, wasn't it? It was, it was <laughs> the dead guy, right? This instructs them on how to travel through time using the slingshot effect. Just to tie it into all the, the second together, yeah. All clever stuff. Well thought out. I liked it. The Tiptons had a long career of trek writing in comics. I first came across Scott Tipton when he wrote Comics 101, one of the first comic blogs I ever read. All right, okay. It was very, very good. We swapped a few emails about going to Disneyland. Very nice. That's true. Yeah, he was a very, very nice man. I don't know if he still does Comics 101, hmm. but it was uh, it was a very good blog, and I liked it much. Uh, this was Rachel Stott's first professional comics work, a fact that belies how polished this is. Hmm. You wouldn't think this was her first stuff, would it? Genuinely good. Boasting a clean, fluid style that's just the right side of cartoony. Yeah. Stott evokes artists such as Mike Parabek, Chris Samney, or Marcos Martin. In that her art is easy to follow, lovely to look at, features none of this overly rendered stiffness of some comics artists, and thankfully there's very little photo reference tracing. I think that's that's one of my favourite things about the artwork in this, is that they look like the characters and not the actors. Mm. And I don't know how to describe that better. But say compared to like the Marvel, uh, the Marvel Star Wars comics, where yeah. it looks like, oh, that's just traced over this. This is even so far as the new uh, Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong, where it's that. You're reading that. I'm picking it up. I'm not reading it yet. All right. Okay. Um, I'll borrow that. But it's where it's very definitely. Oh, I can pinpoint exactly what part of the film that's from. This felt like. Have you read Superman seventy eight? Uh, the first one, yeah. Obviously, I am reading through that going, right, so that's from the bit where he's in the Fortress <laughs> of Solitude. That's from the bit where he's in the bowling alley. Yeah. That, and you literally, because you know the film so well, yeah. you know where they put, pulled that screen grab from. Yeah. And well, it does distract, doesn't it? Whereas this feels much yeah. more natural. It looks like 
a comic book like characters not it's not Shatner and Heston it's Kirk and Taylor yeah even though Stock does do a good job of capturing their likenesses because I found it interesting what she says in one of the interviews in the back because they publish all the articles that was in each comic as well which I which not IDW image don't do mm. that Texas blood does not have the back matter all oh, right okay which is a bit of a shame but this does and she talks about her favourite characters to draw being Spock and McCoy because their faces have character. Yeah. Whereas Shatner is very traditionally handsome leading man. Yeah. So there's yeah. nothing there. John Byrne said exactly the same thing. Oh, that fascinating. The two completely different artists. Yeah. From two completely different generations of comic book have said exactly the same thing. Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, great to draw. Lots of character in those faces. Yeah. But Shatner, you wouldn't say he was bland looking. But from an artist's perspective, you've got but, very yeah, little to work with. You've got little to work with. He was just traditionally handsome. Yeah. So uh, that's I found that fascinating. Because I think she captures Kirk quite well, for the most part. But I, I like the art in this, like you say. I think it is, it's comic book art. You, there's occasions, like I literally just had it open on a page, where I could tell you what happened. That, uh, there's no page numbers in the trade. But there's a shot of Kirk and Sulu mm-hmm. and from Balance of Terror. Right, okay. <laughs> because of the way he stood. But they've changed it. In Balance of Terror, he's not pointing at something. Yeah. So there are a couple of panels and the shot of core on the back page. Spoilers. Mm. They've ruined it on the back page. Splat is... Because for the first issue, it's kept as a secret as who it is, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Right. It's not core until it's core. Oh, right, okay, okay. And then it's go, But he's on, you know... Yeah. <laughs> Turn the book. Well, oh dear. I, I suppose, you know, the Empire States on the DVD cover, yeah, the, the Statue of Liberty, even. Yeah. So that's a publicity still, quite a well known one. So, but, okay. you know, that's fine. But yeah, for the most part, the art is lovely. Fair play to Rachel, who's just gone on to great bigger and better things. And she's done a nice little sketch of Dr. Zayce in here. Very nice. For, uh, for Ambit, Lil Long and Prosper, Rachel Star. Stephen Lacey got me there. Okay. And he got it signed. I'd not met Rachel Star at this point. You did this year, this yeah, year, she last, was year. Yeah. last year, yeah. And I got it signed another Star Trek comic, right? Because I genuinely do think she's a brilliant artist, I think she's absolutely fantastic. Um, the opening tease is the bad guy. Oh, we've mentioned that, and it gives away who it is, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. There's a wonderful opening that is, do you not think this was more Mission Impossible than Star Trek? Were Sulu and Aurora are on the land of the Klingons? I much preferred this. Than Star Trek Six, who were issued to not know a word of Klingon, right? Which made not a lick of sense to me. Whereas he or she's quite fluent in it, so I thought that was quite that was better. Mm. Doesn't make sense that she wouldn't know the bad guy's language, does it? At all. Uh, Shatner and Nimoy would not have allowed this in the show. No, no. For them to that's, other people have an action far scene. too much screen time here for other people. <laughs> And I know Shatner gets bad-mouthed a lot for this. Yeah. Nimoy was just as bad. So that's all I'm saying. Um, I liked it. I thought this was a nice opening. It was nice to have it be Sulu and Uhura instead of Kirk and Spock, which is what it would normally have been. And I kind of think we should forgive them that the first issue is just exposition. It's Yeah, it's... There was, there's a lot of... One of my kind of caveats with it is kind of accept there's an awful lot of dialogue throughout this, but it flows in the way that the show would have. Yeah. So even though it does feel a bit stilted, the show would have just been the same. Yeah. And, and Star Trek was a very dialogue heavy show. But this entire first issue is just the, the pre credit sequence, really. Basically. It yeah. only exists to get us to the apes. Yeah. And Spock's given most of it, which is what he would have been given in the show. And he's basically largely just explaining there's another universe out there with another Earth that also experienced World War Three, but their Earth had a much different outcome. So that's kind of where the division happened. There's there's a lot of emphasis on the fact that this this portals are not Klingon technology, but we're never told where they got them from. Yeah, there's there's that we know because no. I had I had to read this about four weeks ago to give it to you to you to read. I I don't remember if they mentioned the portals. That's true. Because they just. I think Spock says, oh, the Klingons shouldn't have this technology. Oh, it doesn't matter. We go through it anyway. And then at the end, we just leave and we're, we're okay. It's Isn't it closing or something? Maybe it was just a, a natural rift. In so unless maybe there was 
another universe yeah. that gave the Klingons this technology, just like the Klingons gave technology to another universe. Or maybe it would have been like if they'd said it was something to do with like Guardian of Forever. But that would open up that the Klingons have access to the Guardian of Forever and that's all of the kind of worms that you don't want to spill it all over the bridge of the Enterprise, I would imagine. Uh, there's mention of the Mirror Universe and that this isn't it. Yep. Which I thought was quite... I cool. do love Spock's tried and tested beanie hat over his ears. Mushing down to Earth, better put the hat on. I love... You know what I would like? Somebody would go back to the old TV show and just CG that now they're like a hawk in his quarters. <laughs> so every time we're in Spock's quarters, there's a hat. He's got to go undercover <laughs> and put his hat on. I quite I think that'd be real. I love that some of the sound effects of Star Trek font. Right, okay. Oh, that was, that was quite cool. Uh, when they first meet George Taylor, noted Maverick. And rule breaker James mm. T. Kirk. I am going to keep beating this goddamn drum. Elects to follow orders and follow the prime directive because that's what he. Yes, does. that's his thing. Yeah, everyone who says he was a rule breaker and a maverick, I'm sorry, you weren't watching it properly, or you've only seen the films. And even in the films, he only does it once. Yeah. So you know, George Taylor, by contrast, has absolutely no truck with this non-interference thing. No. And based upon this and the films, I have to wonder how good a military man was George Taylor. Because <laughs> following orders, yeah, not his strong point. I did like that this takes up place immediately after the first film. Yeah. Which does come a problem later on when Dr. Zayes is talking about how well him and Zero and Cornelius have been getting on. It's like, but you, you just saw each other about an hour ago. Yeah. As far as they're concerned, yeah, you're literally... Because by this point, he's freed them of being accused of trees. And yeah, then it's just back to and the suddenly home. ape civilization's fallen apart. It's like, no, but we met you. What? Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got a continuity nitpicks, mate. Right. So oh, 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 So keep that in mind. Um, there's a lovely bit of Trek law here in that they introduce a beautiful woman scientist we've never seen before because she's an expertise on whatever it is we need <laughs> her to be an expert on this week. Yeah. So that was nice. And it seems very unlikely that Spock's computers could glean this much accurate data <laughs> in such a short amount of time. Like he's got the entire development of ape culture yeah. in his computer banks within seconds of them arriving. There. <laughs> How good is Enterprise Wi-Fi? Does the Planet of the Apes have Wi-Fi? I don't know. <laughs> How is he tapping into the lawgiver's books? Because that's you know, it's just what he can do, you know. I mean, Technology's just that advanced. It is just that advanced as to appear like magic. And on the one hand, I am all for getting all that crap out of the way. Yeah. Do you think it's like, you know, when daylight savings time changes or you go to another country and your phone automatically updates yeah. that time? Maybe that's what it's like in a parallel timeline. His devices just automatically update to that timeline's history. Right, because in... City no, just... forever. He has to actually construct his tricorder, doesn't he? It does yeah. To then monitor this Earth's history, and it's doing it for a while, yeah. gathering the data. But you could argue though that his tricorder was reconstructed with the materials he had available to him, whereas here Enterprise is working on full thrusters. Yeah. So yeah. therefore, your no prize <laughs> still works, and yeah. also it means we get that crap out of the way in one page and move on. <laughs> Yeah. Which I am all for. I'm from the Jerry Conway school of crossover. <laughs> this is what it is. This is what it is. Deal with it. Versus the Kurt Busiek school of crossover, <laughs> where we spend 10 pages explaining how this has happened. Yeah. But that's just me. Your mileage may vary. Uh, we've mentioned all that, so that's, that's not an important piece of notice. What I did like, again, so mm. go with me on this. Right. Kirk says they are not to interfere. Yeah. Right? He's going to follow the prime directive yep. to the letter. Yeah. As the good little Starfleet officer that he is. All right. In the first landing party, where they knew nothing, had no knowledge of what the civilization or culture was, mm -hmm. they beamed down wearing clothing similar to the natives. Beanie hat and all. Yeah. <laughs> right. Good move, Captain Kirk. Yeah. Done. For the second mission, despite now knowing what they're in for, they beam down in Starfleet uniforms. Well, <laughs> they beam down not wanting to interact with the locals so it doesn't mm. matter what you're wearing if you're not going to interact with anyone else I know but those Starfleet uniforms are, are not subtle <laughs> they were never subtle they're not discreet it's... 
they're multicoloured uniforms in the jungle. It's, it's one of those kind of things where you kind of think in hindsight, like, yeah, maybe we should have had a, a much less colourful uniform. Yeah, but it was 60s telly. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, knowing Taylor as we do, also, let's not forget, massive jerk yep. at the beginning of that film. He's commanding that that shuttlecraft. Yeah, right? yeah. What is the first thing he does with, with the blokes? The girls died. Right. And he's kind of implying that they were all going to have fun with her. Well, she was going to be the Eve. Yeah, it's like, does she know that? And then he gets off the ship. What does he do with his the people under his command? He winds Just them up mercilessly. And I'm like, is this captain material? All your family and friends are coming. Yeah. All your family and friends are dead, whatever. He kowtows to Kirk's non-interference order quite quickly. Mm. And then does what he wants anyway. Yeah. Because he's Charles Nestor. Um, I love that the Prime Directive has no kind of bearing on Taylor. Like, they're only there to kind of not change yeah. the cultural progression of, of civilizations. But Taylor's an alien aspect, so Kirk's like, I don't care. Yeah. And he's, not all, he's also not a Starfleet officer. No, I mean, I mean, it's more the Enterprise crew don't care about telling Taylor anything. Yeah. Like, because he, he's, he's an alien already within his own, his yeah. own thing, so. He's already a man at a time. Yeah. What damage can he do, <laughs> yeah. really? Um, when Kirk orders the landing party down. I honestly thought when I was reading this, why is Chekhov going? <laughs> Just so they could do this. And then I realised they needed someone for Taylor to knock out. So they needed the most naive crew member. Yeah. Chekhov! <laughs> well, there's a couple of times. Later on, we have two nobodies who died. Just so Cornelius and Zira can get the recorder with the plans on. Yeah, yeah. And the other one, we are nitpicking. Sorry, the Tiptons. Generally, we loved the. Uh, I did not buy that Lieutenant Kyle wouldn't recognise Kirk's voice. When George Taylor flips open the communicator and says, beam me up. Yeah, Charlton Heston has a very unique voice. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Charlton Heston is unique. Shatner is unique. <laughs> I'm not buying that Kyle wouldn't buy who it was. I, yeah. didn't, I did not buy that at all. But it does give us... Uh, so I love that a crew member flirts with him. Yeah. <laughs> he must stink, though, like in that enclosed space as well. I mean, at least he's wearing new clothes now. Well, yeah. So he is wearing a Starfleet, well, not Starfleet, he's wearing an engineering outfit. So is, that, is that really the uniform? Long, flowing, open robes? That's uniform? Yeah, that's why they wear in engineering. <laughs> they don't wear the tight clothes because they've got lots of work. It's not practical, though. <laughs> oh no, I caught my long, flowing sleeves and the mechanism. There's, there's my arm gone. There's no mechanism in the future. There's no oil. That's true. You've seen them. They traipse through the Jeffrey's tree. <laughs> there's not so much as a spider's web. <laughs> Nothing. No rats on the Enterprise. <laughs> so that seems fair. It does mean that we do actually get a full-on Kirk fight with uh, George Taylor, where we get some wonderful Kirk. He does the flying kick. Which, this was it, and there's, there's a lot of kind of nice attention to detail here. And one of my favourite ones was was the kick. Yeah. Throughout that show, Kirk never, never, he never had a fist fight. He would just throw himself at people. <laughs> He spent more time on the the air and the floor than than anywhere else. That shoulder thing, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. He'd run into him with his shoulder, or he'd do the double kick. Yeah. Oh, my favourite. Both hands together <laughs> while he beats them about the head and neck. It's like, he had the most unique fighting style on television. <laughs> but it worked. Yeah, there was none of this punch, <laughs> stomach punch, stuntman ducks. Yeah. Oh, no, I've missed. Lead character uppercut. There was none of that in Star Trek. He probably beat himself up more than he beat them up. When you see him all bleeding in shorts. <laughs> and that's just himself. How much of that have you done to yourself? Let's be true. Complete but, disregard for anyone saved it. It's not good, does he? But I do like that he ends the fight by it's Kirk the orator mm. who ends the fight because nobody did a speech better than Shatner. Even Patrick Stewart isn't <laughs> as good at this as Shatner is. From everything, from the, in every revolution, there's one man with a vision to risk is our business, gentlemen. Nobody did it better. Yeah. I, I want this guy as prime minister. <laughs> I want somebody as eloquent as James T. Kirk as prime minister. And you know what? I wouldn't care about him womanizing. <laughs> if he was this good, I'd just be, well, yeah. Did you find it as weird as me? That when given the choice to actually have some proper clothes to beam back down to the planet of the apes, 
George Taylor decides to wear his loincloth. Well, I did think, personally, it's at this point where Taylor rapidly becomes incredibly out of character just so they could tie him back in to the next film yeah. in the neat little bow that they does, especially when we get to, to later on to jump forward a bit. It's like, we can take you with us. Yeah. And he's like, especially considering his whole thing is he wants to find something better than man. We've, we've got to use something here. Come with us. Yeah. He's like, no, I'm going to find something here. It's almost tragic in a way because we know where he ends yeah. up. But it's incredibly out of character where he's just like, no, I'm going to come here. Make sure you put me exactly to the spot where you found me. Is that where I need to be yeah. for the second film to happen? Which obviously it needs to for that to happen. You can't change the film that's already come out. Yeah. But they've changed the character in doing that. He wouldn't want to go back in those clothes. He wouldn't want to go back to that He wouldn't planet. want to go back to that planet, no. He would happily go with Kirk and Spot, and then on the other side, he'd either join Starfleet and go home or whatever. Or go off on his or own. Or give him a shuttle yeah. and go and live your life. Go and do what you want to be. Yeah. Go to Talos 4. Have fun. Have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy yourself, man. You've earned it. But then this is, for me, where I feel like it starts to suffer a little bit more because as we're gearing up more and more to beneath, we've got to put everything back into its nice place. And Scotty has to be a little bit out of character yeah. to talk openly about the slingshot effect yeah. with Cornelius yeah. to again set up the third film. Yeah. Which I didn't buy that Scotty would do that. I suppose Kirk has to reprimand Scotty, mm. third in line for command, about the Prime Director. Again, if this had been Chekhov, yeah. I may have bought it a bit more. Or a more junior officer. Yeah. I didn't buy Scotty doing it. But again, like you said, that's getting them back to where they have to be for, for the escape from the planet of the X. Do you know something I did love, Kirk and Spark? Mm. When they beam down for the third time, they do actually wear period clothes. Fair yeah. play. Well done, Captain Kirk. Learn from your mistakes. Those outfits yeah. are what the two characters were in the TV show. Right, okay. So right, that was a real right, nice okay, touch, yeah. that. Okay. So that, that's the only reference to the television show in the whole thing. So I wonder... Was that a Tipton thing? Hey, Rachel, throw them in these outfits. And right. Rachel Stott just went, oh, okay. Yeah. Or Rachel Stott went, I'm going to put them in the TV outfits because that'll be cute. There's a lot of nice little moments in this, whether it's down to like just bits in the artwork yeah. or bits in the dialogue that kind of does feel like a natural way of going, this is a homage to the originals without mm. batting you over the head with it. Yeah. I, I think for the most part, this was really cleverly done. That said, I did find the final issue wrap-up to be a bit disappointing. Because the apes kind of sort out their own problem, mm -hmm. which Kirk prefers, Yeah, but we're used to Kirk being very proactive. Yeah, When he decides he's going to fix something, he fixes it. Yeah, he, he decides on a course of action, he follows that course of action. He's not like Picard, ah, we'll just let them stew in their own juice. <laughs> Kirk makes decisions and follows through. Yeah. So by letting the ape problem essentially take care of himself, it kind of lets him off the hook a bit. Mm. And it's a little bit not Kirky, but maybe it's just one of those situations where I know I'll take that win. Yeah. Thanks. Um, but Core just ups and leaves. He doesn't really get his comeuppance. There's no yeah. denouement. It means that the story feels somewhat short-changed. Because, as you say, it has to lead into beneath the planet of the apes. And you get awkward moments as well with the gearing up, like, oh, I'm back in space where we can have our final fight. And yeah. then it, the next panel is, we've been chasing him for three days. Yes. I, I've got that exact same note, though. They play cat and mouse around the solar system for three days. Yeah. That we see none of it. Yeah. We, there's an issue, though. There's an entire issue, though, where they're doing, like, balance of terror. Mm. Maybe that's why they didn't do it. Right, because he's yeah. doing Palace of Terror again. But you have to... The Star Trek stuff can be anywhere in the timeline. Yeah. It can be the first year of Kirk's five-year mission. It can be the final year of Kirk's five-year mission. He never says, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. But the Planet of the Apes stuff, there's a very thin window of time that they can allow this to take place. So squeezing it into that thin window of time yeah. does a disservice to the actual end of the story. Yeah. Especially it means now that we'll watch Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Go, oh, yeah, Kurt, was there watching that? Well, it's 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 weird as well, isn't it? Because at the end, they just go, ah, it must have been that bomb that the mutants were worshipping. You didn't know yeah. him! They didn't know any of that. And it's largely, though, so Kirk and Co. can feel a little bit guilty. 
mm. that they've just watched planet Earth blow up. Yeah. So essentially everything they've done is for nothing. And we've got no mention of the other dude either. Like, no other pilot came. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a continuity nitpicks. <laughs> um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But Core doesn't even do anything about this. Core doesn't gloat that, look, you accomplished nothing. Yeah. The humans all died. Well done, Captain Kirk. We'll meet again. <laughs> he just disappears, doesn't he? Yeah. And he's, he's never heard of again. The basic plot here is two Trek episodes. It's a private little war. Did mm-hmm. you watch that one? Yes. The the Klingons arm in a primitive civilization yeah, 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 yeah. and the civil war force and the Federation are on the other uh, side. Essentially becomes a terrorist to stop the Kling. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially it's a, it was a Vietnam allegory, wasn't it? Yeah. And then Errand of Mercy for the Klingons led by Kor are hell-bent on forcing a war with the Federation that is ultimately stopped by the Organian Peace Treaty. Yeah. It's not a new story. It's a fun story. But largely, most of the fun and enjoyment out of this comes from seeing the crew interact with Cornelius and Zira and Taylor and all that. Yeah. And overall, the joy and the fun of seeing that made up for any shortcomings with the end of the story. Yeah. Well, I think with with caveats and more caveats towards the end, I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed it as as an episode of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's the Planet of the Apes stuff that's weaker than anything else. Because he's only got, like we've said, that yeah. thin slither of time. Which makes it an interesting time period to put it in. You've put it in beforehand. Don't have Chilton Heston in it. Have them I know, but to... the fun of that is seeing these two great 60s actors yeah. go toe-to-toe. Or even better, you set it during the third one, or the fourth one. You set it during the fourth one, and apes are dominated, and they think, well, you know, maybe we should do something about this. Well, you don't get Heston again. Well... Sorry, but to make this story work better, I would have gotten rid of Heston. I can actually see but your point. You can. This this isn't doing that, is it? This is no. this is bringing together two kind of cult classics of the screen and characters, two yeah. science fiction characters, and kind of that's really its selling point. But I don't disagree with you that from a story point of view, setting it in the rise of the Planet of the Apes where the Klingons have seen what's happening yeah. and decided to arm the apes against the humans. All that still works yeah. if you remove Taylor from the story. And you're kind of like, well, that does work a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then you're ending. You can have a typical Star Trek musing on, I think we've just taken a look into one of our possible futures, Mr. Spock. Yeah. Thankfully, we did not go down that path. Yeah. And you can have one of those lecturing, this is what we need to do Yeah. to stop what we're doing this is the path we're off yeah and you're not wrong that having child nesting in it kind of takes away from that yeah but by the same token i want to see josh is it what, Kirk punch each other one of those things this starts off really strongly and it's fun to read it yeah. in their head it works so naturally to read to have their voices in your head yeah but then, yeah, the more you start reading it, the more you're like, I've got a second, the further in you get. And it's like, this doesn't work. Well, I see, I think it did. I think overall, I did very much enjoy it. It's an enjoyable romp. Oh, it's really fun. It suffers from Rogue One syndrome of yes. wanting everything to be too neat. But it can't. It literally cannot do anything yeah. by its own. Yeah, and like you said, as just an episode of Star Trek, it works better yeah. than a Planet of the Apes. Yeah, because Planet of the Apes, as we keep mentioning, it's got to fit into a very tight yeah. continuity spot. Yeah, but that kind of does detract a little bit. But as a Star Trek episode, mm. it's really good. Lovely art. Mostly, I found the fan pleasing stuff was good fan pleasing because it was there. It yeah. wasn't. Look at this. Yeah, and they get all that exposition crap out of the way within a page of. Largely Spock related monologue, but it's, <laughs> it's fine. Overall, I recommend it. Mm. I don't know if this is still in print though, because Marvel now owns Planet of the Apes. Yes, they do, yeah, because of the buyout with Fox from Disney. Yeah, and Marvel owns Disney, and Disney owns everything. So, I don't know if this is even in print anymore. So, I don't know if you can get it. Mm. But genuinely, one of my one of my favorite reads of recent months, just from a pure a pure, God, that was fun. Yeah, point of view. So thanks to Steve for buying it, because I don't know if I would. Because with Green Lantern and Transformers, you're like, really? <laughs> but when they did Planet of the Apes, I was kind of like, oh, that makes some kind of sense. 
the the icons of 60s sci-fi. Well, I meant the Guardians send the Green Lanterns off to stop this. I've not got time for Star Trek dealing with superheroes. I'm, there's, I've been invited to do an X-Men thing with Tomb of Ideas with James and Trey right? and to talk about the Star Trek X-Men comics and I'm looking forward to doing it okay. but at the same time I'm like is this, was this a good idea? <laughs> and ultimately I'm kind of like what? but anyway we'll see how that goes but there's a plug there of something that will happen in the future anyway the return of continuity and nitpicks you've missed well, weirdly, I didn't think I missed it until... Until just now, where I threw out that we were doing it. <laughs> Trivia note, World War Three was never a part of Trek canon until the next generation. Mm-hmm. We never had a World War Three in the original show. We had the eugenics wars yep. with Khan and various times and places where we almost brought ourselves to the brink. Yeah. But there was no specific World War Three mentioned okay. until it was retroactively folded into the canon by the next generation. Dang. And I wonder if that's because we'd just come out of World War Two. When Star Trek first heard, World War Two was only twenty years ago. Right, okay. So in your optimistic show, yeah. you don't want to remind you anyone. You don't want about... to remind anyone about what happened. Yeah. People working on that show fought in World War Two. Well Roddenberry did, didn't Roddenberry as well. Jimmy Doohan. So maybe there was a, a reason behind that. By the time you get to the next generation, it's a bit more 20 more years removed. Yeah. The story takes place for the apes characters immediately after the events of the first apes movie, conveniently sidestepping, as we've discussed, movies two through five. Mm-hmm. This does lead to many of the problems <laughs> that we've talked about, but we're willing to gloss over that because we thoroughly enjoyed it. Kyle, Transporter Chief Kyle. Do you remember Transporter Chief Kyle? No, I didn't actually. <laughs> Transporter Chief Kyle is in numerous episodes throughout the series. Right. Most particular mirror, mirror where Mr. Spock puts the agonizer on him. No, Mr. Spock. Don't. About <laughs> decide if the guy's really British, but okay. I didn't benefit of that. He's got a mustache in this story, doesn't yeah. have one in the show. He's in Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. With a mustache? Yes. Right. Okay. He's on Reliant yeah. with Chekhov. Okay. And played by the same actor. Right. So whether that was intentional. Yeah. Or he just auditioned and went, I've been on the show before called Kyle. And they went, okay, well, we'll call you Kyle. Right. Brilliant. Um, So does just make me wonder, is this towards the end of the five-year mission? If he's growing his moustache now? I don't know. Does it? Yeah, I don't know. I I found this to be very season two. What, peak Star Trek? Season two? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, sure. He got a moustache. He shaves it off for Mirror Mirror. Stay he grows yeah. it again. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Jordy has a beard in one episode. He? <laughs> yeah. One episode he has a beard. Never see it again. <laughs> he just didn't shave that episode. <laughs> For that one episode, right. I reckon he was on a bet. He was on a bet. Right. He was, he'd lost a bet. And the bet was you've got to grow a beard like Commander Riker for a week and see if anyone notices. Oh, <laughs> Movember's still a thing in the future. Movember's <laughs> still a thing. Yeah. He's doing it for Movember. That's a better explanation. I like that. Scotty tells Cornelius about the slingshot effect used in various original episodes and the film The Voyage Home, setting up how the apes managed to time travel in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. It's all very cute. But especially when... They already explained how they did that. Yeah. However, ambiguously, yeah, it's just we did the same thing that Taylor did, but backwards. Yeah. <laughs> is that like Ginger Rogers or Fred Astaire? Yeah, I just did what he did, but backwards and in heels. <laughs> yeah. Is that the same thing? So we 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 re-engage the time flux by doing it backwards and in heels. Exactly. Okay. I mean, are we gonna watch are we gonna watch the Planet of the Apes films now going, Scotty taught them that? Scott showed them that. Why did they not find the tricorder on the ship that they crashed in? It got destroyed in the crash. Okay, fair enough. Cornelius seems to be telling of events that haven't happened, have already happened, due to his travelling in time, which is in his future. Mm. This is what you mentioned. When he talks about the lawgivers, which stopped emphasises by using imagery from conquest yeah. and battle for the planet of the apes. Yeah. Which haven't happened yet. Well, this is it's the same thing in the films, isn't it? They they have no memory of the history in the first one. That's why they go out with Taylor to find yeah. ape history and see what happened. And then in the third one, he's like, oh, you know, well, we killed all of our pets because there was some kind of mass genocide with dogs and cats. And then we started having monkeys. pets. It's like, no, when did you learn this? Yeah. When did you have this history? Where does this come from? As we now know, the Enterprise crew influenced yes. their memory. The Enterprise crew did all of As Sarah Connor once said, you could go crazy thinking about this stuff. Yeah. So we're just going to acknowledge it and move on. The other thing you've already brought up mm. that I said part till later. Right. Wouldn't Kirk and Co. 
have seen Brent spaceship crash as seen <laughs> at the beginning of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Um, they were in orbit yeah. in our galaxy for three days. Um, That's the three days that presumably Beneath the Planet of the Apes takes place. Yeah. Why did they not see that? Unless that aspect of Beneath never happened now. So why does Chartleston blow up the Earth? Yeah. Because maybe the Klingons saw it and shut them down. There's no way Enterprise sensors would not have picked that up. Maybe the ship reappeared out of its flux in orbit <laughs> and just crashed. <laughs> Maybe somebody did see it and went, if I report that, we're breaking the Prime Directive and we're stuck here for another week. Forget it. It's like the beginning of Star Wars where they don't shoot the probe down because <laughs> it's yeah. empty. I'm going with that. That'll do. All right. Covers for this here illustrious series were many and varied and they're all published at the back, which is nice. You've got one by one Ortiz, who did that brilliant book where he did a poster for every episode of the original show and all of them. Right, that's nice. And that is literally Kurt beaming down in front of the destroyed Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Nice, but looks photo shopped more than it else. Does. It does. It? Second one is by John Midgley. It's just an ape in a Starfleet insignia. It's good colouring. Rachel Scott provided the other colour, which was the apes jumping out of a tree on top of Kirk and Spark. It's not going to go well for them. Uh, Tony, or Tone, Rodriguez has an ape in a Starfleet uniform sat on the bridge of the Enterprise. I want that yeah. comic. <laughs> I want that story. I want another story where another ship that isn't Enterprise right. comes through the same rift and the apes just kill them all. They take control <laughs> of the ships. That's the sequel. I want that. Because all the other starships were destroyed, remember? Only Enterprise makes it back in one piece. Okay. So, George Perez did a cover, which is nice. It's the Klingons and the Empires and George Taylor and the Enterprise crew all fighting with each other. Joe Caroni did core leading the Klingons. Uh, Kevin Wade did a very, what would you say that is? Abstract? It's very deco. Yeah. Of everybody. Kirk iron up zero. Yeah. <laughs> George Taylor getting a bit jealous. Kirk would. Uh, he would, yeah. <laughs> J.K. Woodward did a good one of Kirk sat, uh, Spock sorry, sat in a... It's one of those funny chur things that the apes have using his tricorder and the apes just yelling at him. It's good, but that ape at the side of him there does not look like he belongs there. Okay. You know, proportionally, he looks a bit like he, he should either be closer or whatever. Proportion seems a bit off, but that's just my thinking. And then the final one is another one by J.K. Woodward of a Klingon holding a Klingon, an ape holding a Klingon bat left, standing on Kirk's body. Mm. Which wouldn't happen, because Kirk could kick the crap out of him. And then, as I say, all of the essays by Dana Gould that were in the original comics are also placed in the back of the train. If you like your Star Trek, and if you like your Planet of the Apes, we heartily recommend Star Trek Planet of the Apes, the primate director. Do we not? Yeah. The crossovers go. It's it's fun. Yeah. yeah. It's fun, it's enjoyable. It's like a good like you say, it's a good second season episode of Star Trek. Yeah. If you don't think too hard about the apes continuity. It's better Star Trek than it's Planet of the Apes. Yeah. But it's Star Trek Planet of the Apes, so yeah. But we liked it, we enjoyed it, we hope you do too. If you actually can track down a copy. <laughs> Let me know if you can. If anyone knows, is this still in print or because IDW or Boom, sorry, don't have Planet of the Apes anymore, is it? Lost to the yeah, lost to the ages, sadly. Um, second email tonight was just from Rob McCarthy. Our battle. Oh, I have to read. He's put the beginning in the title. I could confuse a stupid person. I was a proofreader on Gundam at Viz. Our battle cry was literally Gundam till your eyes bleed. It was hard work, and in those days we still flipped things. Oh, lads, we got a baseball player running the wrong way. All right, so they had to flip the art as well. I don't know. Is that what you're saying, though? Yeah. So you're not just flipping the pages. Hmm. Do they flip the panels? Because I know Dark Horse did that a lot with Lone Wolf and Cub, but I'm not sure. So where did Gundam first see print, then? In Gundam Ace magazine in Japan. But what about over here? Well, it, well yeah, it was Viz. Right. But as I, if I remember, the Viz one wasn't well received, so they had to stop publishing it halfway through. Right. Okay, well, it's interesting that somebody who listens actually proofread the original comics. I'm quite fascinated by that whole deal about how they reformatted it for mm. Western consumption. And now, basically, now they've just gone, yeah, we can't be asked. <laughs> Bring it back to front. Learn yeah. how to do it like the Japanese do. Get used to it. Yeah. Not even translating it now. Learn. 
And another language. And then that'd be good. <laughs> I think. Hey, where are we going to translate it? Here's a, here's a dictionary. <laughs> Localization team somewhere is getting all these comics and going, I'd say that. You've just made us not suitable for Apple Podcasts, dude. <laughs> you can edit it. Censor. You're allowed one, aren't you, in a PG oh. movie? Oh, oh, is that it? You're allowed one in a PG film. So. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I hope Parents, you. guide yeah. your kids. Honestly, if your kids are listening to this, I don't <laughs> know what to tell you, to be honest with you. All right, that about wraps it up for this time. Tight hour. And a bit. And a bit. Quality. After all the coughs are gone. After I edit it. I'm all the coughs. It'll be 45 minutes. <laughs> Um, next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics coming in your ears in March because it'll be February, won't it? Either we shall love it. Either the current Doom Patrol series, which the last Michael's taking mini. lead on, yeah, and also the very first appearance of Doom Patrol that I recently bought the facsimile edition of, or the Enfield Gang Massacre, depending on which one of us. Gets the notes done and the comics to the other person first. We'll see if you get your voice back. Well, yeah, well, you should have done today's episode, really, shouldn't you? I should have. I think if should you we... had Doom Patrol ready. Should we re-record and we'll do a director's cut? <laughs> director's cut, you just read my notes. <laughs> yeah. That would actually be awesome. So we'll see you all in a month. Take care. It's all going to be okay. Um, buy us a coffee, you bastards. And uh, yeah, all the niceness has gone. Now. We're worth it, like L'Oreal. <laughs> and, and email us, email us, text us. We get a lot of interaction on the socials, but I always forget it mm. by the time we actually record because we were supposed to do this at Christmas. Yeah, when we did Gun Down, we didn't because Michael hadn't read it yet. And then we've had to wait till the end of January, so it is what it is. So, email us, text us, whatever. If you text me, tell me to remember to put it in a message thing. But don't do that via text, because you'll forget. I'll forget. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see you all in a month. Take care. Everything's going to be fine. Good. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands To Do production, and hosted by Andrew and Michael Leyland. All opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of the hosts and no one else. The free-to-use music that closes and opens the show was the sci-fi cyberpunk trailer by somebody called Stringer Bell on the pixabay.com free-to-use website. Thank you very much to him. If you would like to support the show, you can buy Michael and I, or both of us, or one of us, a coffee. Go to co-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com, slash Leyland. In one month, an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, coming in your ears. It's a date.